Have you wondered about living elsewhere in your retirement? Well, we have almost daily. No, it's not a simple decision, especially when two people are involved. Hi, this is Gil and Jean of Retire There, a podcast about retirement destinations. We live in Brooklyn, New York, having grown up and worked in this area of the country. We're hoping to relocate when we're both retired. For us, it's the weather, the chaos, the noise, and the yearning to be near nature and not within three feet of human beings. <laughs> That's right. In February 2020, we embarked on our journey to find that special place. We spent a week in Winter Park, Florida, which is beautiful, but something said it wasn't for us. As we were planning for the next trip, the pandemic arrived. Jean then gave birth. I gave birth? To this podcast. With so many baby boomers retiring, many must be relocating. Why not connect with and learn from them? Here's a little background about us. I'm Asian, born in Brazil, and grew up in Flatbush, Brooklyn. I'm an engineer turned attorney turned podcaster. I recently retired from a university career practicing higher education law. I love the academic environment, but it was time to do something else. I no longer have to set an alarm, drive in BQE traffic, or work with people who don't always share the same principles. Oh, did I just say that? <laughs> you bet I did. I traded all that in to binge crime dramas into the wee hours just a little bit to develop the podcast, to volunteer, practice metal smithing, tackle our possessions. No regrets so far, Jane. I'm not Asian. And as Gil mentioned, I'm not retired. I'm just plain tired. Born and raised in Long Island, New York, a place I always wanted to leave. I'm a law librarian working in a court who loves his job, but we're retired by the time we select our ideal location. We will be speaking to folks from across the street to across the globe who have moved to the dream venues and more. So please stay tuned. And remember, if you know anyone who has moved anywhere for retirement, let us know. Thank you. Hi, all. We are chatting today with Gail Smith Paget and her husband, Ralph, who relocated to Saint Remy de Provence. <laughs> I said that right. It's <laughs> been a long time since I took French 101, which is located in southern France. Saint Remy, which is what I'll call it, has a population of about 10,000 and about an hour from the Mediterranean Sea. The town is noted for one of its famous residents, an artist we are all too familiar with, Vincent van Gogh. Van Gogh followed his dream to Arles in Provence, where he hoped to create an artistic colony. The dream did not materialize, and his mental state deteriorated. In 1889, he took a short train ride from Arles to Saint-Rémy and committed himself to an asylum, Saint-Paul-de-Mausolée. The 30-room facility wasn't full, so Vincent was allowed two rooms, a bedroom and a space that he used as a studio. He was only there a year, but produced 150 paintings. Wow. Isn't that amazing? However, his mental state fluctuated and was once confused and ate his oil paint, at which point the institution paused his artistic activities. Now, I should say to our audience that I've been taking art classes, and one of my professors has a license plate, which I could not figure out until I said it over and over. And it was spelled V-A-N because he had a van, and the other word was G-O. So I was like, what is this Van Gogh? Oh, Van Gogh. So that was his favorite painter. Okay, Gene, a little about our guests. Okay, so Ralph is originally from North Carolina. He earned undergrad and graduate degrees from North Carolina State and had a career in operations research systems analysis 
and resource analysis for the federal government in Washington, D.C. and Heidelberg, Germany. Birding has been his lifelong passion. Gail was born in Washington State and later moved to Southern California. She pursued degrees in Spanish, Latin American studies, and English linguistics, and had a career in language acquisition research and teaching before transitioning to work for the federal government as a management analyst. Gail has written two books. The first was Passion for Provence, 22 Keys to La Belle Vie. And the second is The Birdwatcher's Wife, A Quest Across France for Birds and La Belle Vie, both available on Amazon. Gil? The couple met in Washington, D.C. and eventually moved to Heidelberg, Germany. During a delayed honeymoon, they discovered and fell in love with Provence, primarily due to Ralph's interest in birding. They contemplated retirement locations and chose Provence for its sunny weather rosé wine, and excellent birding opportunities. (laughs) They now enjoy an active lifestyle, engaging in activities like writing books, playing tennis, walking in the mountains, biking, birding, and planning adventures now that there is the freedom to travel. Okay, so welcome to Retire There, Gail and Ralph. What led you to San Vrame? It uh, starts with birds, actually. You know, you mentioned that we were having a delayed honeymoon. This was after we were already installed in Heidelberg and starting work and couldn't take off on a vacation right away. So it was about a year later. Ralph was so excited about going to the Camargue because it's a world-class birding zone. And the Camargue is a vast delta where the Rhone, which comes down through the center of France, it empties into the Med. And that whole big area is referred to as the Camargue. It's just south of Arles. That's where Van Gogh was. He suggested that we go somewhere down here. And, of course, we didn't have to do any arm twisting for me because it was Provence and hilltop villages and Mediterranean cuisine. And I thought, yeah, that, let's do it. And so the magic just hit. But it was right. pre-internet. So yes. we had to come down with no idea of where to stay, just to nose around, see if we'd find someplace. And that's kind of how we found Sarami. We didn't really know it before. We were sort of headed to Arl originally, and then uh, we didn't find the kind of place we wanted there. So we started looking around surrounding villages, and that's how we found Sarami. Really, really kind of by happenstance. Yeah. We really liked it from the beginning. Seriously. And, and having worked for the federal government, both of you, right? Did you have your pensions from them as well? Yes. Yes. Okay. So that's a really helpful yeah, that helps, yeah. with health care. Yeah, we got a, a solid you know, retirement. We don't have to worry about it fluctuating with a 401k investment, that kind of stuff. Right. So it's it's a, it's a real help to have that, that base. It's yeah. a sort of guarantee. Absolutely. Good for you. Shall I go back to Saint-Rémy for a second? Yes, uh, yes, please, please. Yes, because it is really a jewel. It's, as you mentioned, about 10,000 residents, but I like to use the phrase, it punches above its weight because it is um, a lively town year-round, which is a big deal for uh, some of your listeners who might be contemplating the size of a town that they would like to tire in. And if they're only there for, you know, the touristy seasons where the markets are lively and lots going on, they might be surprised to know that that lovely little town might close up in the wintertime oh, or for huh. vast periods of time. So Sony has a solid base, has a lot of restaurants and cafes. There are a lot of special events going on all year round. Very lively and vibrant town. It's um, nestled into the Alpi, which is a mountain chain that means little Alps. So within literally 20 minutes or so, we can walk from our house into town 
out the other side and be in the foothills of the LP where there are all kinds of opportunities for walking, hiking, biking, horseback riding, birding, birding, of course. (laughs) And it's got this diversity that really appeals to us. So some places are flat you can see forever, but this one is tucked right up against the, the mountain. So we've got nature right at our doorstep, which is important to us. There's a strong support structure in the town so that we can walk or ride our bikes to get pretty much everything we need to do. I mean, it including doctors and hardware store. Hardware store. <laughs> oh, that's key. Yeah. Yeah. That's important. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, and we have friends who prefer the quiet, the peace and quiet of being out in the countryside, but then yeah, they'll have to hop in the car to go get, you know, groceries or hammers, nails, whatever. <laughs> okay. That sounds incredible. Yeah. 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 So Sanermi does not close up during the winter, you're saying? There are fewer tourists, but it doesn't shut down at all. A lot of the restaurants will close for two or three weeks, stagger through the course of the winter, mm-hmm. let their staff have some time off. But no, there's always something going on there, Christmas celebrations. And you know the, the town also really cherishes and honors its, uh, its character. There are a lot of things they do to honor the, the past here. They have the, these women that dress up in, in costumes from the late 1800s and very elaborate lace and headdresses, and they do that in parades around the town. It's, and they also have a lot of sort of cowboy culture here. They uh, raise bulls in, in the in the Camargue for, forever, and they parade around town and have sort of a running of the bulls three or four times a summer. Wow. So, so yeah, they they like that sort of historical background that they they all seem to continue to cherish. Yeah. And one of our favorite festivals is called the Tanzumals, and this is when this happens on Easter Monday. No, Pentecost Monday. Or Pen- Pentecost Monday. Two to three thousand sheep are herded around the town, which is a circular town, so there's a, a ring road, and the shepherds and the whole families come out all, you know, dressed in their uh, traditional attire, and all these sheep go around the town a couple of times, and then they take them up onto the plateau where they have a big barbecue, and you can guess what the, the meal is. Oh, God. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> town is just packed, and that just happened. Yeah, but that's to commemorate in the old days, the shepherds would actually take their sheep to the Alps, and they would uh. just drive up to the Alps and spend the, the summer in the Alps where the grazing was better, and then bring them back down in the spring. In the spring. Oh, uh, okay, uh, okay. In the fall. So that's just sort of commemorate that. Yeah, I forgot to ask you guys, where did you move from before you went to Heidelberg? It was the Washington, D.C. area. Oh, we so you were there the whole Eastern. time until, okay, okay. Yeah, we were both working there. We met there in the apartment. We both lived in the same apartment complex uh, in, in Northern Virginia, met by the tennis courts and okay. you know, recorded there and <laughs> got married and then moved to Germany. Okay, okay, very good. So how are you treated as expats? How are you treated by the locals? I think they're quite uh, generous and friendly with us. We've got French neighbors around here. The guy across the street said we passed away from COVID. As soon as we were moving in, he just bounded across the street to introduce himself. Oh, wow. Um, and say, welcome to the neighborhood. Our neighbors next door, uh, he's a sort of international consultant. His wife's a a lawyer. Every time we walk through the street, they drive by, they stop and talk. They just just very friendly. We've been really, really pleased with the reception we've had here across the board. And do you need to know? It's a somebody that's sort of rude to you. It's it's really unusual. Oh, nice. And do you need to um, know French? The more you know, the better. Neither one of us are fluent. But we have sort of get by French. I can read fairly well now at this point. Oh, nice. But uh, there's enough, you know, Google Translate and those kind of things for written documents. And there are quite a few people around here that are pretty bilingual. And we've got okay. some um, an English friend who's totally bilingual. She does translation. So oh, wow. we've got friends that can help us fix a real problem. But yeah, we are sort of embarrassed of how much French we don't know. <laughs> 
I want to call it the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah, you know, the bar yeah. just keeps you know, getting higher and higher. Because yeah. before we moved here, I thought, oh, just give me six months and I'll. <laughs> French is hard. I, it's, yeah. I studied along with Spanish. I yeah. did take a few uh, French courses and I had to have French in high school. Yeah, conversational French and talking with the neighbors and stuff, the business people and so on. What's tricky is the phone. Now, making a uh, reservation online that works sometimes, you can't do that. You have to call them up. No problem there. But let's say you're talking to a doctor whose language skills are not that great or the pharmacist, like the other day when she said, oh, we didn't get, you know, such and such a vaccine for you. We got the other one and that's not the one we want. And here's why. And she went, Oh, my Lord. And I go, wait a second, do you mean? And I sort of repeat back. And then she said, yeah. So I said, okay, <laughs> got that. It yeah. depends on the scenario. Yeah. But I mean, for the day-to-day stuff, for the bureaucracy, you know, you, it's possible to get by without. I mean, obviously, the, the basics of, you know, hello, goodbye, please, thank you, mm-hmm. uh, those kind of things in any language, you need to know those, just to be polite to people. Mm-hmm. But if you give it just a, a little bit of a try, people are pretty pretty forgiving. Okay. Of just okay. Skills. It's sort of embarrassing sometimes, but it hasn't been an actual problem for us to do the things we need to do. Mm-hmm. Are there many expats in your particular, you know, neighborhood? So you don't have to go too far to, uh, if you wanted to have a nice little good old English conversation. You would be amazed at how many international slash expat groups mm-hmm. there are. So mm-hmm. I would suggest to your listeners to Google expat groups, associations, and so on for the region that they're interested in. Because the one that we joined when first came down here uh, and had our established our base camp, mm-hmm. you know, our starter pad, right. um, was in Aix-en-Provence, which is a gorgeous, wonderful city, 150,000 people, university town. And we joined the AAGP, which is the Anglo-American Group of Provence, which has about 400 families. I believe on the roster, mm-hmm. but they provide a tremendous amount of support. So if you need anything at all, you can just enter their private email system uh, once you're a member and you have the codes and so on and ask whatever you need and you'll get tons of, of right. supplies. So right. folks who are not here yet might consider joining for, I think it's 45 euros a year or so just to access that great resource. Here in Sour Me, there are also not an association specific to Sour Me, but there are, there must be, I don't know, 50 or 60 Anglophones from New Zealand, Ireland, England, Scotland, U.S., we got one from Egypt. So, you know, there are a lot of people around that are here as expats and living here some all year round, others for several months of the year. Okay. okay. I was just wondering if you stepped outside your house and you were, let's say, clipping some roses or <laughs> birding. Uh, you can't necessarily tell who's going to speak English or not, right? Okay, very good. So tell us about housing. How did you go about finding a home in San Rami? We were looking at some of the uh, current prices and they're, it's quite expensive. I mean, it's costly for a tiny studio. I was looking at a very small studio and it was going for about $600,000 US, although the euro now is pretty equivalent. Studio? So, yeah. yeah. And then there were homes over a million, but it depends on obviously where, where the location, right? But uh, I was just curious. So tell us about your housing experience and did you rent? Did you buy? Biggest, most important tip is for folks to rent before 
buying before plunging in because you need to get feel for the lay of the land before you make that big commitment. Even if you're pretty sure you know a place pretty well year-round, we found our starter flat through the tourist office in Aix-en-Provence, and we looked out, I guess. It was the second place we looked at, and it was a two-bedroom place, 67 square meters. About 750 square feet. Mm-hmm. And had so small. Yeah. Tiny little balcony, but had a gorgeous view over the, the city. We paid 1,100 euros, I believe, and that was a decade ago. But I've seen similar similar prices recently. But here in SRM, it's a it's a whole other kettle of fish. It's the same as in the state. Location, location, location. Mm-hmm. What's in cost in Paris is not the cost in in Provence, and that is not the cost already. Sarmi is very popular and prices recently have definitely gone up. But we could not find an actual little house with a swimming pool, which was a must-have for us after going <laughs> through a couple of sweltering summers in X with no air conditioning, no pool. We said, that's cool. We looked and looked and looked, and we couldn't find a rental. We weren't prepared to, to buy at that point. So one site that is very, very helpful, I would think, is called Sulogier.com, and it's S-E-L-O-G-E-R.com, and Logier is like to live, whatever. Okay. And you can click on rental or purchase and the zone that you're interested in. So and you can also set a price range. Mm-hmm. We just couldn't find anything after a year and a half. And, and then um, we came back to Salami. And I should note that even though we knew Salami very well at that point, because we've been coming down here for so many vacations while we were living and working in Heidelberg, and we were pretty sure that this was where we wanted to be, at the very end, we thought, nope, perhaps too small for year-round living. And so that's why we chose but then it turned out that the house that we found and wanted and was perfect for us was here at our name. Brand new house with a pool, walking distance to town, a little garage, single car garage. And being new, it had one of our um, criteria, which was bonata, means good state. We didn't want any kind of a dilapidated fixer up as a a rental. We wanted it pretty top notch. Everything was sparkling new and functioned and so on. We did have to buy a refrigerator and a washer and dryer and a dishwasher. So the oven was in, the stove top was in, and sink and all the things. That's pretty standard. That's that's pretty standard, even as, Mm -hmm. you know, a rental. Some rentals are fully furnished places, right? And so right. they'll have all that. Fully furnished ones are going to cost a little more. Typically, the rental contract is different. For fully furnished, it's typically a one-year contract. For unfurnished, it's usually a three-year contract to start. Okay. And we've been in this place for over 10 years, oh, and we've wow. got this wonderful landlord. He's a man who built the property, mm-hmm. built it with his own hands. We saw him build the house next door with wow. his own hands, with very little help. Wow. If there's anything wrong, he just comes right over and knows how to fix it. And just wow, a wonderful so guy. so fortunate. Yeah. Yeah, we've been, we've been really, really delighted with him. In fact, sometimes we think about buying a property or moving to someplace. The one thing we don't have here is a great view. We like to have a better view. But everything else is so perfect for us. And to move, you know, don't want to go sideways. I want to move better and just can't find better. <laughs> right, really. right. Because there's always something that you don't like about almost any property you can find. This guy, he's a young guy, he's only in his 30s or so when he came here. I think our rent at that point was something like 
$14.50 a month, and now it's $15.50 a month. And it's been like that for several years. In fact, just as an indication of how extraordinary this guy is, I think he likes us. Told us that he, um, oh, he reduced our rent by 15 years. He, he had a management agency handling the financial part of it. And after a few years, he said, you know, I really don't need them anymore. You just pay me directly and we'll split the difference between what the management company was getting. So I'm in a reduction in our rent. Yes, it's a little more money. And in the old days, the old contract had a provision in it that the rent could change this national index. So it went up a little bit every year. Not, oh, okay. said, no, we'll just freeze it to where it is right now. Wow. Wow. And how, how many bedrooms is that? It's two floors. The kitchen it has a, um, called them laundry. It's a laundry room, um, storage, L-shaped living room. And then there's a, a bedroom slash then with an adjoining bathroom. Although, interestingly, you will believe this, but there's no toilet in bathroom. Double sink, shower, plenty of room. Mm-hmm. The powder room by the front door is where you have to talk to one. Oh, oh, I thought but it'd be like upstairs. Start upstairs is um, the main bathroom, two bedrooms. So we're looking at 125 square meters, and that would 1,400, 1,500 square feet. That's a oh, great so size, not, yeah. It's not a big property, but for two people, it is. I would mind having one more room so I could have a little office for myself. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. you know, it's, uh, it's fine. No, it sounds wonderful actually, for the price. Smaller now is, you all got me a piano, a baby grand piano. Oh, I see. It. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. So that uh, wow. takes up a good bit of our space where we used to have a, a dining room table. Now we don't have a dining room table. <laughs> Not a proper one. <laughs> you can eat on top of it. Very pretty. Yeah, that, that's a nice house. Yeah. And so you guys are looking for a place with a pool. Does it have a pool? Yep. So we've got a, a terrace that has sort of a, a covering over it for shade, not for rain protection. I mean, just beyond that is a pool. It's about, I think it's six meters by three or so, you know, 19, 20 feet long. So it's not really a lap pool, but it's plenty big to go for just a little cooling off dip. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we do have air conditioning on the main floor here. So we prefer to have fresh air whenever we can. So sure. unless it gets above 95 degrees, yeah. we just use the swimming pool as our cooling agent and just get yeah. pulled through it times a day to pull right. off. Okay. And so you said you guys pay about 1500 a month. I'm sorry, you're 1500 euros, euros a month. Yeah. And so you think somebody could find something like that now or, or probably be more, I assume, right? Not not here as far as me, I don't think. Okay. But 2000 here. Now, for, for comparison's sake, looking at Saint-Longer, that website we talked about, you know, if you look over an X, this kind of property we're in now would probably be more like 2500 euros. Okay. okay. The X okay. just to give you a comparison of prices between the two. Um, yeah, X is, it's interesting. X has a lot more apartments than separate houses, whereas Sarmi is mostly individual houses and not so many apartments. Okay. They're doing quite a bit of building right now, small houses at the east side of town, and a couple of more plots are going to be developed nearby. It'll be interesting to see what those houses go for if they're put up for rent, because that will be sort of similar to what we have now. And for what it's worth, the mayor here, and he's been the mayor for around 20 years, <laughs> is trying to push for more affordable housing in this mm-hmm. town. He's concerned that it gets more sort of posh. It's going to price out more local young families. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's not and good. That's a concern of ours, too. Because we want to see, you want to see a full community. You, know? you want to see kids in the school and, and yeah. young families as well as old people like us. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, stop. I thought it was interesting. The first place you found, you found at the tourist office. I didn't know tourist offices had real estate openings. It, it was a fluke. They have uh, basically vacation rental properties. Uh-huh. Okay. And, and usually what happens is a private owner will register their property with the tourist office and say it's available for vacation rentals. This is before Airbnb was so popular uh, and 
home and away, those kind of things. Mm-hmm. So you know, we just sort of went by there. We actually, at that point, we're not looking to get a long-term rental. We just need to get a place to rent because in order to really get your visa, you have to prove you have a place to stay. So we want to find really something like you know, some sort of base camp and start. Mm-hmm. And so we thought, okay, we can go to the tourist office and see what they have. And they had something that worked for us. And we know other people here in Sarami that were looking to rent a place year-round. And they approached the owners of Vacation Rail and said, listen, we can make you a deal. We'll rent it year-round from you, uh, and you'll make more money. You'll be able to use it yourself if that's what you want to do with your property. But, you know, you'll do better off over the course of the year. You don't have the people changing in and out. Mm-hmm. You have to pay the cleaning fees, all that sort of stuff. And several people found a nice place to stay, very much in the old part of town, right in the middle in the middle of everything. And they love it. For us, that would be too much in the thick of things. Uh, they can walk, I mean, literally two minutes to everything. <laughs> but oh. uh, for us, but it's so hard to get to nature. It's, not, it's yeah. just around people too much for us. Right. So do you need a car at all or do you have one? We have a car yeah. and it's, it's, uh, we met an American family moved here. They try to live without a car for about, for, they're going for a year. They last about three months. The trick <laughs> is you can live in Sarami without a car. But if you want to visit any of the cute little nearby towns, the best transit's not there. Maybe if you really work out, you get there by bus or if you don't want to go too far on an electric bike, maybe. Uh, which a lot, which is getting more and more popular here. But no, most of these little hilltop villages that are so cute really don't have possible of getting there without a car. And some people do, but you know, they do a uh, you know one day rental or a week long rental. Actually, we got two cars. Yeah, yeah, two cars. One of them is an old workhorse that we kept when we got the um, the newer car because they wouldn't, they hardly would give us anything, and so we just use it to take stuff to the the dump, but. Um, we had to get new tires on the yeah, two front tires recently, and that sort of doubled the value of the car. So, that's usually- <laughs> so we won't be having that for much longer. One car is plenty for us. Most people here want cars in there. And I might add that X has a train station, so you can go all over from there. But the bus service here is really good to north to Avignon, which is about 20, 25 minutes by bus. And, but the Marseille is the closest airport. That's about an hour away. Okay. And it's not a major international hub. It you know, has direct flights to Amsterdam, Frankfurt, Munich. Uh, so you can you can get into the international travel pretty easily from Marseille. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's the, that's the, the airport that we typically fly out on. Okay. Okay. How do you find the general cost of living there? I think it's pretty close to what we live. We found we live in Highbury in, in Northern Virginia. You know, things change are varying. Uh, wine's way less expensive here. Uh, fuel for your car is way more expensive here. So. You know, you, those things kind of balance yeah. out depending on your activities. <laughs> uh, we told you about our rent, so that's I think that's probably pretty close, less than what we pay for a similar place in Northern Virginia. Uh, food is uh, reasonably priced here. It, there's a lot of really good fresh uh, fruit and vegetables here because a lot's grown locally, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. in Spain, Italy, and one of the Mediterranean countries that are close by. We have a great Wednesday market here that has tons of stuff. You've got bakers and butcher shops and fishmongers, all those things scattered around. We've got one fairly large uh, supermarket here called Intermarche. It's a chain. And we've got another one called Aldi, which is actually a German company. Oh, it's yeah. We have. Like, well, they have in the States, actually. Yeah. It's a very similar thing to the ones they have in the States. So just for your basics, everyday things, it's uh, less expensive and it's quick in, in and out because you don't have to bruise a whole aisle of cereal. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> right, right, right. I might point out that utilities are extra. So we have, you know, electricity. We figured, I think, 100 20 euros a month, water, about 45. Our cell phones and communication, it's way cheaper here. I think our cell phones are about 20 each. And that includes uh, calls to the states and Canada. Wow. Wow. Yeah. 
and our internet is about 50 euros a month, and that includes it's a fiber optic and includes French cable TV, a landline that we'd ever use, mm-hmm. and then just our internet connection. Yeah, and then okay. insurance for the house and cars is about 125 a month, about, and then. Uh, okay. But oh, that's great. Like Ralph said the wine is way cheaper. So, you know, <laughs> don't drive so much and you can stay home and have a <laughs> go to one of the million wineries around here and have oh. a degustation. That's a, a tasting. And yes. you just walk in, by the way. They don't charge for tastings here. Oh, wow. The unwritten social contract is if you go in for a tasting, you're going to buy at least one bottle. Yeah. Of yeah. course. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And let's say you don't feel so well. Right, you've had too many pastries. Too, uh, too, too, much, too much wine. <laughs> too much wine. Where's the nearest hospital? And let's talk about healthcare. It's fantastic, and we we delved into it much deeper than we ever uh, intended. About about ten years now, 2012, mm-hmm. Ralph was having neck problems, and he ended up having the head of the neurosurgery department replace a disc. Wow. Um, and that uh, was wow. pretty, pretty daunting at the time, but yeah, uh, yeah. it was probably a tenth, maybe. Of well, I was in the hospital for three days, private room, had a little cot in there for the other sleep with it, had a view of the Mediterranean distance. <laughs> uh, kind of nice. And the total bill was 7,500 euros. Its price would have been about $10,000 then with the current exchange. Wow. Rate it's interesting because you had to pay up front because our insurance is we pay up front and then we get reimbursement later. So Gail's down the business office trying to do, get the uh, the payment mm-hmm. settled. Mm-hmm. And, but the bill said five days in the hospital. And the surgeon told us three. So Gail said, is, okay, this, is the price correct if it's only three days? And they told her, it, there's complications. You have to send over two weeks. It's the same price. And wow. I should mention that the little hiccup we have with payment. He's already checked in. And I'm in the accounting office. And from all the money, I think it's about 7,500 euros mm-hmm. or so. Was in the bank account, a French bank account. My card kept debit being card. refused. My debit card kept being refused. And I was really sliding fast into panic mode. And I said, I know the money's in there. I know the money's in there. It's, it's all there, but I couldn't get to it. And I thought, I mean, he couldn't walk. So I was panicking, thinking they were going to kick him out. But I said, I've got it. I know what I'll do. I'll go down to the bank and I'll get the cash and I'll come back. He said, ma'am, that is not a good idea. You don't want to be walking through Marseille with 7,500 euros in <laughs> cash. So that's not going to work. So finally, um, my bank and this gal got, uh, got connected and the bank transferred the money over. What we've learned from that was that you don't have access to all your money all the time. There's yeah. a limit on your card. When you're calling. Yeah. So okay. later we once we got home, we went back to the bank and rearranged things so that we could yeah. have a higher a higher, limit. a higher limit. And then if you do have a big um, bill Expense. like that that you mm-hmm. are anticipating, you could take care of it by check ahead of time, but the check has to clear before the event. Mm-hmm. Or you make an arrangement with the bank and they know that it's happening and you know it's a special transfer. Okay. Buying a car, for example. Okay. Okay. So you're not on the national health care plan. You're on, you have private insurance, it sounds like. Yeah, it's, it's insurance. As federal employees, when we retired, we got to continue the health insurance provided by the federal government. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, we have a fee we pay for, but it's, it's subsidized. So it's pretty reasonable for us. And we just stuck with that because it's worldwide. It's actually run sort of for the State Department people primarily, but we were eligible to use it as well. So we just stuck with that. 
We're thinking I'd swap it over to the French system called this bureaucratic. It's much simpler. You get this card, you give it to the doctor, goes into the machine, money comes to the bank to pay the doctor, the bank, the government reimburses your account. It's all done electronically, no hassle. Whereas we have to collect the receipts, plan them on what they are in English mm-hmm. and our account number, and then scan them and email them to an agency back in the States that then has to verify that they're going to pay that, and then they decide what they're going to pay. The reason we're hanging on to that sort of an insurance policy, if we got out of it, we could never have it again. And if we ever ended up back uh, in the States, mm-hmm. we would want to have access to that. And we didn't want to be having to pay into two systems. Now it seems that things have changed a little bit and we're looking into possibly getting what is called a carte vitale. But after three months here, folks are eligible to apply for that. And you won't believe this, but to see a doctor, an internist, the regular GP, it's 25 euros. (laughs) And you normally pay in cash directly to the doctor. The doctor will make change. (laughs) (laughs) So out of pocket, it's just 25 euros. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. The government negotiates with a consortium of physicians for a fee structure that applies throughout the country. So any general practitioner anywhere in France, 25 euros. Specialists get 50 maybe for a consultation. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. all uh, negotiated. So the, 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 the medical providers are not employees of the government. But there is this negotiated price. It's renegotiated pretty much every year or two. So it's, it's gone. Well, I think when we first got here, it was 19 euros. It's gone to 25 now. And yes, turned about access to doctors. We actually have an English-speaking, an English woman doctor at 20 minutes from here. We have a Scottish dentist. And after hours, practice here in town, the weekends and after hours. Oh, good. Uh, the closest hospital is Avignon, which is about 20, 25 minutes. Oh, okay. That's very convenient. God forbid in the event. You don't have to be you know, helicoptered out. Um, we hear from <laughs> yeah. some people, you know, some of our guests, oh, well, you know, in an emergency, you know, we would right. get uh, evacuated. And, <laughs> right. and you don't want to have to wait for that every so often, right? No. That's a real consideration for us. You know. My dermatologist speaks quite a bit of English, not fluent, but she's, she's wonderful. Okay. So, it's a little trickier to get into some of the specialists because they don't have enough of them. For example, we've been going back to this, we go back to the States every year or two. We get our eyes checked there with an ophthalmologist there. Here, they're kind of fully booked. It's hard. They won't take any new patients because they're just so full of people they have. So that's a little, some of those little specialties are a little trickier to, to get access to. So you have family back in the States, I take it. All around. Okay. <laughs> Everywhere. Okay. Okay. Brother in so- New York City, sister in North Carolina, sister in Oregon. <laughs> She's got a brother in north of San Francisco, a sister in Southern California, a sister in Texas. Um, so, yeah, it's just, just all over. So going back to the States, you, know, you never can see everybody. You just can't right. <laughs> but at least you have a home there and you don't have to worry about, you know, having to find a place and then stay. Well, actually, we sold our place. We don't have a property there, but we have a town that we know well. Uh-huh. So we can go back to the town. We, we had a condo there that we sold. A few, a few years, years ago, ago in Palm Springs, California, that's where I went to high school. Uh-huh. My mom was there for you know over 40 years. So that mm-hmm. is basically my hometown. But over time, it got burdensome to manage the manager oh, of yeah. <laughs> the property back yeah. there. Sure. And, uh, it's a long way to go. It had been on the East Coast, it would be perhaps easier. But that's a consideration for, for folks. I'm assuming that we will chat about the the visa requirements and so on. Yeah, let's talk about that now, actually. Gail, can you tell us? Okay, um, sure. Yeah, with um, 
you know, your tourist visa, you can uh, travel for 90 days right. over here. But beyond six months, oh, well, so beyond, if you want to stay longer than 90 days, then you would have to get a special document from the French government. Normally, that's the, the closest French consulate to where you live. And for us, that was the one thing. Right, when we were, yeah, more, went from Palm Springs and we went to LA to get it. Okay. So, and then it's just, it's sort of like doing your taxes. Hey, they ask, ask a whole lot of questions and you <laughs> just have to fly through it and prove that you've got certain health insurance and prove that you have income to support yourself and mm-hmm. that you have an address to stay in another report had and so on and so forth and uh, you pay a certain amount of money and then you get a visa and now they have different types of visas so but when we were doing it it was just one year visa and then after five years we are eligible to apply for the 10 year and that's what we have now so the first five years we had to renew it each year and we could do that locally. We did not have to go back to California to renew it. Okay. But it was the same paperwork, the same kind of thing. You had to show income and place of state, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. It's kind of reasonable stuff. Yeah. You just want to make sure you're not a burden on their society. Yeah. yeah, there's a new kind of visa now that wasn't there when we were here. It was always it was 90 days with no paperwork required or a year's visa. And I've got some sort of six-month visa. We understand people are on it. And I don't know what the requirements are for that. It may be different. So anybody's interested in coming over for more than 90 days, which we recommend for working out right here. Maybe that six-month visa is a good idea so you can bridge a couple of seasons uh, and get a better feel for a place. So it is different to live in a place than it is to be on vacation. The time frame is extremely important in terms of uh, tax liability. Once you cross that six-month barrier, you now might be... Well, French consider you a tax resident of France. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now, how much your tax depends on where your income is, et cetera, et cetera. We're not tax lawyers, so anybody that you know, has financial considerations and think about living over here probably should yeah. consult a, a tax lawyer that's familiar with both the French and the, and the U.S. systems. Because right. there is no double taxation treaty between the U.S. Mm-hmm. and France, but it's, it's, I think it's pretty complicated. Yeah, it's over my head anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you mentioned a little about banking. Was it hard to get a bank account in France? Sort of interesting. It wasn't hard, but uh, one of the things that's sort of uh, amusing to me about France is often they want to prove that you live in a place. They want a utility statement, a water bill, electric bill mm-hmm. in the last 90 days. Everybody accepts that as proof. Before they would give us a bank account, we had to prove what our, what our residents were. Well, at that point, we didn't have those. So they had the bank had to send us a registered letter that we could respond to. From that address. <laughs> then they had verification of our address and they would let us open an account. Because we checked there the first day with, you know, here's a thousand euros in cash. You'd like to open an account. And they said, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> but it, it, it all worked out pretty easily. It just got yeah. to wait the three days for that letter to show up and send it mm-hmm. back. It was a little tricky at first, too. We were doing, um, you know, we didn't had investigated the whole foreign exchange thing. Now there are banks. In fact, the bank we use in a savings loan out of uh, Washington State does bank transfers directly through you know, the international trading. So we get our U.S. dollars transferred to our French bank account periodically at a pretty decent exchange rate. Mm-hmm. But we use uh, Banpay Paribas here, which is a sister bank of Bank of America. Oh, so that's, okay. Yeah. That worked out pretty well. Recently, well, in the last few years, the U.S. government has made the requirement that foreign banks, they have, they have to uh, report American um, clients to some degree. So some banks have been not wanting to take on American citizens. And I know this because that organization that I mentioned earlier, AHP, there was a one time where there, was a, there were a lot of emails flying back and forth about trying to get a bank account and a lot of people were having trouble and asking for advice and what banks were taking on American clients and so on and so forth and they worked it out but it's a little trickier now because of this requirement of the U.S. And it's 
U.S. taxpayers do. If you have a foreign bank account, you're required to file separate information to the Treasury Department on what foreign accounts you have. And if it's over a certain amount, if you're living in the U.S. and it's over a certain amount, they're concerned with money laundering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. For people hiding assets. Mm-hmm. If you live here full time, then the threshold's pretty high. You can have, I think, 400,000 uh, euros mm-hmm. uh, in, in a rich bank account up to that amount. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're considered as normal if you're living here full time. We're nowhere, we're nowhere near close to that. So the French, I, I assume the French banks don't want to do it because it's a lot of paperwork. Is that right? I think that's maybe. I think, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, another interesting thing here in banking, French, at least our bank, does not do credit cards at all. You get a bank card, but it's a debit card. They, they don't do credit. Oh, wow. Pretty much in all of these, as far as we can tell. We use our American credit cards no problem. For the most part, there's some cases where the, uh, certain companies won't accept an American credit card. But it's unusual. So let's move on to weather. What's the weather like in San Ramin? <laughs> well, that's one reason people like to come here, especially those from uh, England and uh, the Northeast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Rarely does it snow here. I think it snowed in 2012 a little bit. We're dusting this past winter, a dusting. And, and some parts of the pool froze over a little bit. The winters can be very nice. In February, it could be 15 degrees Celsius and sunny, and you're having lunch on the terrace. So that 15 degrees, around 60. But if you're in full sunshine, it's it's fine. One drawback to the weather here, particularly in Sarami, is a very fierce wind that can crop up at any given time throughout the year. It's called the Mistral. It is seriously a showstopper. It can last for days. It can last for several days. Wow. And, uh, I think Peter Mayo mentioned it in his uh, famous book, Here in Provence, and said that it's known to a rumor that it can uh, upturn old ladies and rip ears off donkeys. <laughs> <laughs> and he wasn't exaggerating. He does move our patio furniture around, that's for sure. It's uh, On his worst days, it'll be blowing at about 40 miles an hour, but gusts to 65, 70 miles an hour. Enough to kind of knock you off your feet. But pretty so, wind- gusty, yeah. The other element to the weather is the heat in the summer. Last summer was pretty fierce and we had long stretches where we had a condition called the conicool, which means it's something like over 80 something degrees. And it doesn't um, cool off at night either. So that right. when the government declares that, then they open more cooling centers for people to go to. So it's a sort of a, an official designation from the meteorological people from the government because it does provide extra services. But yeah, we had temperatures that were you know, between 97 and 103 uh, for you know, a week or so back last summer. And that's usually a, actually a typical summer here. You'll have a few, most days will be upper 80s, low 90s. Mm-hmm. But the reason it gets, it gets crowded here in July and August because it almost never rains in July. Ah. So the French people come down here on vacation and they think it's always sunny here. And it is mostly always sunny. I think it's 300 days of sunshine a year. So a lot of people come down here because it's, you don't have those gray skies yeah. that you have. In, like we had in Germany, Heidelberg, it was in wintertime in particular. It was just a very low cloud ceiling. And when we were working, it didn't, didn't bother so much. When you retired and you wanted to go outside and say, boy, it's <laughs> dark out there. Right, so right. It's, it's just brighter down here. You know, a lot of the painters came here to talk about this, the, the light down here. You've got oh. the vegetation different with just a lighter colored green. And so it makes the place just shimmer. Oh, wow. But um, so cool. AC units are not all that common. They're becoming more and more common. But in this house, uh, brand new, over 10 years ago has only one ac unit and that's in the main living area we don't have one upstairs but it can be pretty tough sleeping through the summer nights and so we have these tall um, fans, kind of tower fans that we mm. have 
blowing on us, but I <laughs> think that pretty soon we'll probably get another unit upstairs. Otherwise, we can sleep downstairs in our mm-hmm. media room on a hold out camera. Okay. But, okay. Uh, it's something, it's definitely something to, to consider. And a lot of the houses down here don't have central heat at all. This is the air conditioning we have is actually heat pump, so it's reversible, uh, so it's heat in the winter. But a lot of people, they just have these uh, plug-in electric, they're built-in electric radiators running off electricity. Don't know how expensive that is. We have some of those here, but we never use them. Electricity here is mostly provided by nuclear power plants. So I think it's a little less expensive than a lot of other places. But still, I wouldn't want to heat the house with that <laughs> way. So yeah. it's, it's consideration of somebody buying a house or renting a right. house to see what kind of heating system it has. Yeah, so a lot yeah. of places down here really don't have any central, central heat at all. And your building isn't that old, right? So it doesn't have like those thick, doesn't have those yeah. thick walls, right? No, we don't have the thick walls here. Mm-hmm. People that live in the village, those houses were built. Two, three hundred years ago, right, and yeah. the walls here are typically three, four feet thick. Yeah, wow. Yeah, so the houses don't heat up until last part of August. They start getting a little warm. <laughs> Yeah, I'll bet. I'll wow. bet. But you guys are lucky you have the pool, though. Yeah. In the summer, yeah. yeah. So we're in and out all through the summer days, usually. And I'm glad you brought that up because, mm-hmm. as I mentioned earlier, it was a must have. Now, some years on, since we, well, Ralph has been the pool guy. There's a fair amount of work involved yeah. in maintaining the pool. I yeah, was going to yeah. say, yeah. you know, that's a lot of work. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah you know, it was a few days ago and it looked getting kind of green. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been raining a lot here. We had in the pool. We had a cover yeah. on it. Pulled yeah. out the cover and oops. And so had to run the filter for three yeah. days. You know, it, it's okay now, but uh, yeah, so it does require attention. But yeah. I can only do about maybe six, yeah, six strokes to mm-hmm. get. Up through the length, make mm-hmm. the length of the pool. So, you know, it's not a, a, a pool size that you would use to actually do have a big workout. In retrospect, I think a small dipping pool might be just fine. Oh, yeah. Just yeah. enough that you can submerge. Right. And, and a lot of people who have a, a property, you know, they have a yard, mm-hmm. they do put up these little uh, temporary pools above ground during the summer. Oh, and, okay. Uh, I didn't okay. want to do that, but yeah. had I allowed, you know, considered that, we would have had more choice. Right. Yeah, they aren't particularly attractive to pop up pools, but uh, yeah, they are. They do work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I think the dipping pool is is more and more common. I see in a lot of you know. I subscribe to all these home and building magazines, and a lot of people want that because it's not so deep, so they don't have to worry as much if you have a lot of kids running around. And for those of us who are just learning to swim, <laughs> we appreciate that because. My sister has, what is it, eight feet going to even 12 feet. I yeah, because she has a dive, they have a diving board. Yeah, she has There's a diving board. board yeah. And it is so scary. I mean, forget the upkeep. Every time I go there, she's like, don't worry, we'll we'll watch you at the midpoint. <laughs> I said, at the midpoint, it's over my head, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. And and like you say, the upkeep is, it it can be a little bit of work. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Of course, there are but, a lot of plenty of full service providers around here. So if you want to pay the money, then. Right. You can have to take it before you. Yeah. I'm probably myself. Yeah. Oh, you know what? I, off the subject, I should have mentioned it when we were talking about gas prices, a driver's license. That's something uh-huh. that people often forget. Yeah. Because here you need to convert, you need to get a, an actual French license uh, within the first year of residing here. There are quite a few U.S. states that swap with France. So if you're lucky enough to be living in one of those states, then you're golden. Otherwise, you're going to have to uh, go through the whole rhythm rule of you know getting a fresh driver's license. Oh my <laughs> in French, and it's not easy behind the wheel, yeah. according to some of my friends who, yeah. who had to do it. 
I was just wondering, you know, wow. trying to learn all the French just for that little book. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's enough for like a whole whole year's. <laughs> yeah. All so right. you guys had to uh, go through all that, right? Or did no. you have the no, reciprocity? Well, Dale had reciprocity. He had a license from Virginia. That mm-hmm. state has reciprocity with France. I have a German driver's license. I got before we left Germany. Ah. And as long as I don't have any violations, which I have not on wood, yeah. in the 11 years of being here, I can just stick with that because it's part of the EU zone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's free travel within the EU zone. So uh, I'm okay with that German driver's license. It's oh. interesting. It's a lifetime driver's license. Wow. wow. We have a friend who... <laughs> His pick, pocket pick wings with us, but his driver's license was in the 50s. Oh, oh my, my goodness. Lord. So even That's when so funny. you get to a point where you shouldn't be driving anymore, there's no kind of <laughs> enforcement or any concerns, I guess. Well, I think if you start having violations, they'll pull it. Ah. <laughs> that's the, that's the ah. Okay. Yeah. Well, that, right. that's, that's a very good point. Okay. Or what about if you don't want to cook all the time? You're in France. I assume there's great restaurants out there. Oh, my God. How, how are the restaurants Food. near you? That is one hot topic. <laughs> I mean, it is actually the topic conversation. You know, we get together with our French friends or, well, expat yeah, friends, anybody, mm-hmm. anybody's. What's new? The fresh markets here are and the weekly markets or sometimes bi-weekly markets offer a huge array of uh, fruits and vegetables so you can carry your own stuff. But here's how I mean. There are a ton of cafes and, and restaurants. I mean, seriously, probably over three dozen. They range from, you know, pizza takeout place to five-star restaurants at, at hotels. I think we have a few that are mentioned in this one guy. Or, you know, some people will say, oh, there aren't any good restaurants. I'm sorry. <laughs> because there are a lot of tourists here. So a lot of the restaurants do cater to tourists and aren't counting on repeat business. We have... Some favorite restaurants that are on the outskirts of mm-hmm. town or okay. the villages not far from San Remy, mm-hmm. but it's a, a serious, serious topic. It's something that shakes the heart. They're very interested in where the food comes from and how it's prepared. Case in point is my um, hairdresser, a guy named Nicolas. Last December, I asked what was he going to do for Christmas Eve? Because that's the big yeah. event around Christmas. It's Christmas Eve. There's usually big meal and stuff. I said, what, anything special going on with you? And he said, no, 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 nothing, same old, same old, nothing special at all. And I said, he said, just the usual. I said, well, like what? And he said, well, fresh oysters, foie gras, and champagne. <laughs> the usual. Okay. Well, nothing, nothing special. And when he says champagne, he means with a capital C. This is not some sparkling ah. wine that he got at the drugstore. This is from the area of Champagne. The Champagne region. Yes. Fresh oysters probably come from. There's a famous place down by, by the Med called Musée or Upton. Some people prefer their oysters from Brittany, but I'm sure Nicola has very specific demands. <laughs> Yeah, I'll and bet. And he has so many customers who can tell him all the best places. <laughs> oh, it's no no problem finding yeah. all the price points. Really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, how like the daily workers, you know, there's got to be that meal of the day. Not in right? France. Yeah. Oh, you do have it. There, there's a certain class of restaurants that are sort of designed for long-haul truck drivers and the local oh, okay. road crews, that kind of stuff. Right. And they typically will have a one place special of what mm-hmm. is your plate of the day. Right. It's generally very... Standard kind of food that you see in a lot of places. 
but in large quantities for so people that are working. So you'll have uh, chicken dishes and veal dishes with rice or noodles, uh, stews, that kind of thing. But yeah, very good, very tasty. Mm-hmm. And you wouldn't call it folk cuisine. It's not like it's, you know, they characterize it a different way. We went to eat at a local one-star mission restaurant for our anniversary here in town. Mm-hmm. And they spent, and each dish, main dish had four little flower leaves on it, a little bit of sauce in each flower leaf. Oh, my goodness. And the guy had to explain all each one as well. <laughs> That's not the plot, you're kind of place. Right. You know, they right, they right. bring down, here's your plate, and uh, it, yeah. Yeah, speak to your ribs kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah and there's yeah. a lot of places like that around. Not so just Friday's Army, but out on the, on the, the two lane roads where there's mm-hmm. a lot of workers going back and forth. I might Good. mention that the Michelin Guide has a category called, just like a bib like a little baby wears. The Michelin Guide has a category of restaurants that um, they give a designation called BIB. And these are the level of restaurants that are right below the one star level. Uh, okay. And they're often, there is a, a cutoff on how much. They can charge for um, a menu, uh, something like 30, low 30s, I think maybe up to 35 euros or something like that for a three-course meal. I don't know. It changes all the time. So often out in the countryside and often you find just these marvelous gems, fabulous, but maybe not terrific. They're not interested in spending resources on cutlery and and Waterford glasses and so on. But the food is, Uh, you know, really significantly. That's our places. Oh, one thing, too, we just, that's wonderful about France is that often restaurants will have a four move during the week at lunch. So it's like Monday through Friday, not counting days, uh, holidays. And they offer at lunchtime a special formula where you get a starter starter in a main dish or maybe starter main dish and dessert or some people like the the main dish and dessert and maybe sometimes it comes with coffee maybe with even a glass of wine or two right right depends it varies but they're often very very reasonable so you can go try out an upscale uh, restaurant and dip in during the week at lunch and you can just sample the fare and not have to uh, sell the family part are there any restaurants that are not that are good that are not french can for instance can you, is there an Indian restaurant in town? Not really. That's one of the things we miss a little bit. There are Italian restaurants around, pizza places. There is a Vietnamese restaurant in town. If you do find a, a restaurant that's serving any kind of curry, and they mm. do serve curries from time to time, it will have no heat, no spicy heat to it at all. Mm. It's like the French don't like spicy heat at my restaurant. Ah, uh, yeah. Mm. You can get cayenne pepper at the grocery store, so somebody's eating spicy food. Typically <laughs> <laughs> in the restaurants, it's not. In the bigger cities, X. You know, they'll have Greek places and uh, Asian places, yeah. but not here. It's, it's pretty much all French with a little Italian. Right? There's a, a guy, this sir, is a Vietnamese that has a stand at the Wednesday Market, usually. He's selling you know, spring rolls and that kind of stuff. But no, no, no Mexican food, no Asian food, really. No, not even any kind of Eastern European food. It's mm. quite exotic if you a uh, Sicilian restaurant, <laughs> not everyone uh, knew it. And that's okay, pizza okay. about as exotic as it gets here as far as me. But X is a different yeah. thing. Lebanese, Indian. Vietnamese. Oh, wow. Oh, there okay. is a Vietnamese stand. Um, just take out only in that okay. is fabulous. So okay. whenever I'm in there, I always make it a point to stop by for dinner. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I want to remind everyone that we're speaking to Gail Smith Paget and Ralph Paget about living in San Remy, France. 
So, Gail, can you tell us a little? You've written two books about living there. Can you tell us a little about those books? Right. Uh, Passion for Provence, uh, 22 Keys to La Belle Vie, I wrote after we had been here for some years. I used to uh, mention to Ralph that I wish I had written a book. And he said, well, uh, <laughs> never too late. But uh, at some point, you're actually going to have to write the book if you want to say that you have it. Finally, got to work and produced it because I'd had journals to look at. I'd always kept pretty accurate and detailed travel journals along the way and uh, daily journals as well. So I had a lot of information there to come up. You know, the tips that I include in here, I think are probably some of the main ones that folks would, you know, that would be helpful to to folks. I think I have one here called French Fry. Yeah, that's becoming, <laughs> you know, learning French. So when I need to keep rereading. <laughs> A couple of years after that, book came out, Ralph came up with the idea to go on a big birding year. You know, he's a passionate bird watcher. Birds are the reason why we ended up down here in the first place. And he said, hey, I, it's time. Uh, it's called uh, hey, back time. Back time. <laughs> he was right the first book. I was doing the laundry, the shopping. <laughs> I'm grocery shopping, even house cleaning, all that sort of stuff. So good for you, Ralph. Kind of yeah, so so I thought, oh dear, this is really going to hurt because I wasn't a bird watcher at the time. Ah. Because he said, I want to, I want to go around France and see how many birds I can spot in a calendar year. So in birding parlance, this is called a big year. And oh, there was a movie uh, called by the same name. Do you remember this? It's with um, Steve Martin and what? Jack Black. Okay, we'll have to look for it. Yeah, the big year. So he wanted to do a big year, but he was pretty um, reasonable with the amount of birds. He said at least 200. And there are something like 450 species that have been one place or another. So I thought, okay, this is going to be a slam dunk. And, um, you know, and going all over France, that really appealed to my adventuresome spirit. I thought, oh, great, more hilltop villages to explore. I can do my wonder wander sure. where I just, you know, wander around wherever my wonder takes me. And we can discover all kinds of new, you know, gastronomic delicacies and, and so on, discover new. So off we went. And that was 2019. And we finished on January 1st, 2020. Wow. And we had a, a party to celebrate. On the 2nd of February, 2020, that was Global Wetlands Day. So that was perfect. <laughs> right before <had>. COVID. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. We had about 30 uh, people in here, uh, shoulder to shoulder. Yeah, we got in just under the wire. So anyway, so then COVID happened, and that's when I, I set to write the book in earnest. Along the way, covering France from, you know, the Mediterranean to up to, you know, the North Sea and the Alps to the Pyrenees, the English Channel, sorry, <laughs> Brittany, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, man to the Brittany and, and over in uh, the Alps and the Pyrenees. Yeah, things started to change. My attitude and my concept of, of being out in nature really um, developed. Wow. And then um, uh, David Attenborough came out with his his uh, great documentary called... I like him. Yeah, it's his... Um, oh, yes, yes. Yeah, did you ever see that? Yeah, Which, yeah. No, and he's got these other new ones. Yeah, in the last year, there's... Yes, been, he's uh, come out with Wild Amazing. Wild, wonderful, yeah. Yeah, so, he's amazing. Anyway, so 
The Birdwatcher's Wife, A Quest Across France for Birds and La Belle Vie is a combination of looking for the birds for his, <laughs> his quest, for his bucket list quest. But I was also on the lookout for um, discovering the food and the culture of the different areas that we went to. One of them was really extraordinary. It was over in a town near the Italian Alps called Barcelonette. And in August, they have a Mexican festival. They wow. bring in Aztec dancers in all their, their costumes. It goes on for days, and now it's morphed into a, a Latin festival, really. But it's because this was sometime in the 19th century, a large portion of the population went to Mexico, and they made fortunes they, in the textile industry. And they brought their fortunes back, and they built these huge mansions wow. in Barcelona in Mexican style. And and so they have the celebration every year to commemorate this connection. It's, it's really unbelievable. So, oh, we had some wonderful Mexican food off the street from this gal who was making little uh, tacos. Who does <laughs> oh, Gene's <laughs> mouth is watering because he's his <laughs> favorite growing, food is Mexican. <laughs> Oh, cool. So all in all, your two books differ in the sense that this second one sounded like a big, it was a big deal. I mean, all the stuff that you did to get all that content in. I like the yeah, idea I of the food and, and the uh, culture and of course the birds, but still. <laughs> so did you, how many birds did you find? And then it's 205. Oh, oh, just made it. Just made it. Yeah, good. <laughs> it was kind of iffy. I think the, the 200 bird I was out by myself birding and you know, I was off with some friends somewhere. And, uh, I was with Nicola. I remember that very well because Nicolau was standing behind me with some very sharp scissors. Oh and I was looking at my cell phone and I got and No, I think I was so happy that he wasn't standing behind me holding yeah, sharp really, scissors. Really? I think I left out of the chair. Yeah. In birding terms, 200 in a year is not a huge deal. I mean, okay. people go out and they'll find 100 in a day or a weekend. But that's with guides and it's with, you know, kind of a hell-bent for leather, ticking it off, the bird off a list, not um, savoring the moment, not uh, watching the birds and trying to deal with uh, a non-bird watching partner who wants to <laughs> drag you off to go lunch. lunch because that was one <laughs> of my caveats at the beginning was that well savor the experience and not become a fanatic about it and he said that <laughs> you could do that and I think I did and, a pretty good job until December when it was getting close to the number yeah not getting not making a lot of progress I got a little obsessed with it then yeah I was really <laughs> like I'll bet that's something you get obsessed over. So, Ralph, how many birds uh, in your lifetime have you spotted? I can't truly answer that question because I've got bird guys from the East Coast and the West Coast, and I've got bird guys for Europe. But some birds <laughs> are in both places. So I've uh, ticked them off in my European guy, I've ticked them off in my American guy. Uh, uh, so take a common mallard does. Okay. You know, okay. Or, or um, star. You know, they're in all those places. So I've okay. seen starlings from all those places. But I, I, if I had to really sort through all that and figure out which ones would be double counted, I'm guessing only probably maybe 550, 600 species. Whereas our people have seen, I think the world record now is something like 9,000. Oh, wow. Lord. Wow. See, That's for me, unbelievable. That, that doesn't really work for me because how can you remember what you saw? 
<laughs> I was just going to say, how do we... Seen, the first time I saw her, I remember a lot of those occasions because I told Gail before she got interested in birds, she was always interested in art. Hmm. And she loved going to museums and seeing a painting that she'd seen in books her whole life and actually see the real painting. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That was a huge thing, made a big difference. And for me, looking for birds, I've seen it in the guide many times and then to see one in real life. It's oh. just such a special feeling. I remember yeah. those moments. Nothing like yeah, seeing I'll, the real thing. I'll bring up this guy that we oh, okay. okay. October of the Big Breeding Year, Where to Watch Birds in France, written in English by three guys, uh, Jean-Yves Barnago and Nidal Ista and Sebastian Dalida. Uh, Jean-Yves has become a friend. And mm. great guy, professor of ornithology at the University of Montpellier. And he is... Um, this is super, absolute super guy. If any Good of your to know. listeners do want to come over and uh, look for birds, <laughs> this is, it's, hey, he got put to the test by this guy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's saying, you know, wow. it, it's really wonderful. That is this wonderful. Guy, John, John, he's, he's a great guy. He's a young guy in his 40s, yeah. speaks English like he grew up in the U.S. I mean, just oh, wow. Uh, just really fun guy to be around, and so it was. It, we actually birding with him one day, yeah. Which to me was a little nerve wracking because it's like playing tennis with Roger Federer or something like that. <laughs> mm-hmm. guys God, yeah. Professor, yeah. and he was really good. Bird fly. I said, you knew what it was like that. You just hear the wing beats and he would yeah. have Wow, what a nice experience <laughs> to have. Yeah, you know, you'll always remember and that. Of course, we went on this bird walk. Mm-hmm. And he looked at a blind at the far end of this big nature area, and he gave a picnic lunch. He pulls a bottle of wine out of his pack. <laughs> <laughs> That's fans for you. That's that's a Frenchman, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. San Remy. Okay. Well, you know, you, we spend a lot of time and we want to thank you so much for the time that you've given us. We appreciate it. Our podcast appreciates it. We'll make sure that people are aware of another area, San Rami. We covered Brittany and Paris, Marche. This is so great. Well, we have so many Italian and Portugal shows that this will really make it rich. We kind of feel like we're Europeans now, although here we are sitting in the basement in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. So <laughs> a little far, a little far, but we're getting there. Okay, guys. So we well, want to be delightful chatting with you. Thank, thank you very much. No, I thank know. you. And maybe yeah. we'll see you over here. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I want to do a little birding. My sister does a lot of it, but she doesn't do enough to warrant one of those uh, checklist books because uh, she's got the little, um, you know, the binoculars, the nice ones. She, well, at the time she was raising two kids when she spent a lot of time in the big park in Brooklyn, uh, Prospect Park. But nevertheless, I think it's a great one. There are birders at Prospect Park. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. There's a lot of birds yeah. there. So, there's an article in New York Times just this week about great places to go birding in New York City. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Not well known. yeah. I think Prospect Park was one of the ones they mentioned. Yeah. Oh, really? Oh, I'll have yeah. to let her know. Okay, guys. Well, thank okay. you again. Thank you so much. Thanks and we'll so stay much. in touch. We'll stay here. Bon weekend. Oh. Ah. We, we, bon weekend. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you know someone who's relocated for retirement and wishes to share their story with us, please reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you. Our email address is gg at retirethere.com. Our website is retirethere.com. And you may follow us on Twitter at retirethere underscore. Now, if you've liked our show, please subscribe and rate it in Apple Podcasts. In the meantime, be well. Be well.